Welcome back to episode 2 of Undercover. I'm Casper McLeod. Before we start, a quick update from episode 1. Information and recommendations surrounding the AstraZeneca vaccine have changed. People under 50 can now choose to take the vaccine if they want to. For up-to-date information about Australia's vaccine rollout, please always check the government's website. A link will be in the show notes. Don't forget, you can leave us a voicemail message on 9018500. If you have any thoughts, questions, or stories to share about misinformations or vaccines, we would love to hear from you. If you like, you can leave your number and we can put a journalist in touch with you. For now, on with the episode. Today, we will be looking into the different people and groups that can influence misinformation. First, we are starting close to home. Australian rules football clubs are subject to a variety of members of different backgrounds. With more access to news and AFL information than ever before, more of these members are talking to each other about it. But is the circulated information always correct? Eli Duxon explores. It's a hive of activity here at Hillside Recreation Reserve after local footballers of all ages suffered in its 2020 absence due to COVID-19. What local footies return has also brought, however, is spread of misinformation between members of clubs in social settings. The Hillside Sharks are taking on the East Kilo Cougars for the first time since July 2019. They compete in the Essendon District Football League, which has over 10,000 members, and that's just covering the northwest suburbs of Melbourne alone. Nationwide participation has edged towards the 2 million mark as there are many benefits to playing football, like improving physical fitness and hand-eye coordination, but at its core, it's a social activity. The demographic in these local football environments are typically children, teenagers and young people. Charlie Denaro is the senior coach of the Hillside Football Club and has been involved in footy for almost 40 years through various teams and in various roles. He has been exposed to a wide range of individuals within local football clubs and says thoughts, conversations and attitudes of people are dependent on the club. I think generally the conversations I have with people in this football club, other than football, is what's going on in AFL football, what's going on in the market, the local market. A lot of the players now are starting to buy properties. So we'll talk a little bit about that, a little bit about investments, a little bit about you know, how to spend money, how to save money. News and information on the AFL are in as high demand as ever, being the most followed competition in Australia. With this comes a lot of unvalidated rumours and information which runs rampant through local football clubs nationwide. I spoke with Ross, Zach, Harry and Tom from multiple football clubs across the Northwest on their experiences with such rumours. I've heard a lot of rumours in uh, AFL and just around footy clubs as well. A lot of guys talk smack and they don't know what they're talking about or they just heard from a mate, from a mate, from a mate and none of it is actually really reliable. Yeah, a few, few people sent me stuff like saying this is 100% truce and all that. There's sometimes, you know, stuff gets passed around on social media as well where you'll see like, oh, this bloke's got a quote and this is he's taking this as what's authentic and stuff. So probably goes around, even though it probably never gets validated or verified. Denaro says social media as a site of information consumption enhances the spread through local football clubs. There's a lot of players that get scrutinised and, and it filters down to our level. The boys talk about it um, and, and probably, uh, boys talk about it all the time. And I think probably the, the most concerning thing for me, there's a couple of things, but um, that social media aspect, while we know it's prevalent in the AFL, it's really catching on at local level. He thinks the difference as time has progressed. More and more players at local football level don't have the best support network at home, in addition to the easy access of information on social media. 
This results in less education on certain topics and means that club members buy into false information much easier. When something just keeps gaining momentum and the more and more you hear about it, you tend to, maybe not myself as much, but general people who aren't here all the time would say, oh, really, that player did that with that player's girlfriend. Oh, shit, that's, you know, that's crap. Whereas if you know the situation, there's always a little bit of home truth to it, but there's always a lot that's been taken way out of proportion. When false information like this is passed on unknowingly, it is called misinformation. Misinformation can be harmful as it can damage reputations and relationships. Players most commonly access news and other information socially, either from friends or family, and of course, through social media. RMIT ABC Fact Check Chief of Staff Sushi Das says misinformation can look different depending on how it comes to you. Misinformation and disinformation can both come to us through um, words, so text, videos, uh, photographs, memes, so it can be visual as well as uh, text. And often the false information can often include a sort of kernel of truth. Um, so it might be something that is true, but it's reframed so that it's in a slightly different context, which makes it misleading. Denara said earlier that misinformation can gain momentum and pass through a football club quite rapidly. But the football club isn't exclusive to the physical club rooms or oval or car park. So much interaction is done online that information can spread almost virally. Sometimes, you know, uh, people just haven't thought about it and they do the usual, you know, scroll, 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 like something, share. And, and, and it gets passed around really quickly because things happen so fast these days. And sometimes, you know, you might share something that goes to a group of people and all of the people in that group might then share it again. Local football players share their thoughts again. Do you ever pass information on to your mates that you can't really confirm but think might be true? Yeah, I'll be honest, sometimes I do. I do get sucked in sometimes to probably some fake news. There has been stuff that I've passed on to my mates that I was just like, oh, I'm I'm pretty sure it's true. I can't confirm if it's a true fact. I'd say I would have definitely, if I if I believe something or if I just hear someone's word for it and I think it's a good story, I'd, yeah, I'd put my name to it to try and, if it's right, get the satisfaction of saying, yep, yeah, I said it first. Das says we often believe information that comes from our friends or family or information that confirms our worldview. So what can we do from here? Changing attitudes and the way people behave is a difficult ask, but it just requires more attention to what we're consuming either online or in person. There are some key questions we need to ask. For example, where did this information come from? Who sent it to me? How did it actually get there? Who put it there? And, and what might have motivated that person to put that information there? Understanding how to navigate online resources comes down to media literacy. Dr. Tanya Notley is a senior lecturer at Western Sydney University School of Humanities and Communication Arts and says that media literacy is important to fully participate in society. Whether it's socialising with your friends or making new friends or engaging with government, engaging with our, our democracy, um, you know, getting health information, all of these different things require media and media and technology engagement. Education is being provided through primary and secondary schools, and surveys show that children are more confident in their media abilities than adults. For adults who think they may need some assistance, there are classes and tools available for them to improve. Dr Notley thinks we still have work to do to access them more directly through the media they use. I think that media literacy education for adults has to be delivered online. It has to be delivered via our broadcast media, and it has to be in our communities as well. Media literacy education is one step in a positive direction in shutting down misinformation online. But what about when we're told something in person? 
If you know you're being told the wrong information, be empathetic and letting the person know because it happens to everyone at some point in their life. The better equipped we can be as verifiers of information both online and in person will go a long way in reducing the circulation of misinformation of news and particularly AFL news in local football clubs. Eli Duxon with that story. Misconceptions can come in various damaging forms. One form in particular is stereotypes and misconceptions about different communities. In this story, I explore how misconceptions and misinformation about the queer community impacts the mental health of queer individuals. Mardi Gras, a celebration of queer culture, history and identity in the middle of Sydney. Australia's come a long way since the first Mardi Gras parade. And yet, despite the progress made, some major challenges still remain for the queer community. A lot of these challenges revolve around misinformation and misconceptions about the queer community and homosexuality in general. Maria Marshall, a psychologist, works with members of the queer community. Maria spoke about the mental health impact of misinformation and misconceptions on queer individuals. We want so much to be accepted and we want to belong. It's just intrinsic in our nature. Um, you know, so our brains constantly think about and analyse what people say to us. So if you are constantly being told to question aspects of yourself or constantly being told these very negative things about who you are, um, you know, that you don't fit a mould or you do fit a mould, then you're going to start to kind of question or, or feel uncomfortable with your own identity. The consequences of such thoughts can be severe. It can lead to internalised homophobia, it can lead to internalised transphobia, it can lead to having to conceal or hide aspects of your identity to try to avoid hearing these stereotypes. And it can impact all aspects of a queer person's life. It, it makes people fearful to discuss aspects of the sexuality or gender with others. Every time you meet a new person, you start a new job, you join a club, you have to decide whether you're going to come out and, and how that's actually going to be perceived. What are you going to hear about yourself? What are you going to hear about your family? What are you going to hear about your community? In 2014, the Australian Human Rights Commission published a chart detailing facts about queer Australians. They found up to 11 in 100 Australians may be a part of the queer community. These individuals are three times more likely to experience depression. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, compared Australia to the OECD average across their 37 member nations with regards to LGBTQI plus inclusion. Australia does well compared to the OECD average in some areas, but Australia is below the OECD average in terms of protection of LGBTI people against violence. As a young queer person myself, I often wonder how my queerness is going to be judged by others or whether or not their reaction is going to be one of verbal and or physical assault. Of course, violence is not the only form of discrimination those in the queer community face. Stereotypes is another prominent form of discrimination and these stereotypes are common and numerous, as Maria Marshall pointed out. You know, it's, it's hundreds of times that you will be told that, you know, um, these stereotypes about yourself. And some of the most common ones that came up was that, you know, sexuality is a choice or your gender is a choice. This never made any sense to me growing up. Why would I choose to be someone others seemed to hate? Maria was just getting started. 
that you can be cured of your sexuality by just having great sex with someone of gender. All trans people are gay. Uh, your queer colleagues are definitely going to try to hit on you. Um, being gay means you're a pedophile. If you're a gay or lesbian parent, that you're depriving your child of a parent of the opposite gender, which will definitely have negatively affect your child's development and that you'll potentially make your child gay just by being in the same vicinity as them. Um, that trans people have to fit this really extreme version of who they identify as. So a trans woman has to be like, you know, has to have full surgery and be ultra feminine. There were others mentioned too, including bisexuals being greedy, bisexuals can't be in a monogamous relationship, and lesbians are trying to be men. Some of those stereotypes have been perpetuated by people in a position of influence and power. An example from within Australia was back in 2014 when Brian Taylor, current AFL commentator with Triple M and Channel 7, said of Geelong player Harry Taylor. I am up here getting ready for the game and I've just seen that crap from Harry. <laughs> He's a big poster. Brian Taylor's comments were made during a Channel 7 broadcast of a game being watched by an audience across the country. Though Brian Taylor underwent counselling and education afterwards, as reported by the ABC, the question remains, who knows how many queer people heard that statement? And it's not just sports figures. Politicians can be guilty of spreading harmful views about LGBTQI plus people too. Former Prime Minister and at the time, federal member for the seat of Rohingya, Tony Abbott, said this during a 3AW radio interview in 2016 on whether or not Australia was moving towards legalising gay marriage. I remain stubbornly, if you like, uh, of the traditional view. And, and I do think we should be very slow to change something which has existed since time immemorial. Um, these things exist for a reason. Other politicians around the world have said controversial statements regarding the queer community. One example is Jair Bolsonaro, the current president of Brazil, who, in a 2018 interview with Time, compared homosexuality to pedophilia. Maria talked about the importance of language from people in power on the mental health of queer individuals. If the leader of your country is promoting that homosexuality leads to pedophilia, then that's a view that is now, one, acceptable for the general community, but two, um, that every single gay person in that country and in the world, because you've heard as well, is actually listening to someone in power say that this is the reality of being gay. And once again, of course, that influences how you feel about yourself. As for anyone who doesn't know or care about the mental health of queer individuals, Maria mentioned this supporting them is supporting the people you love is supporting your own community is creating inclusion is creating better mental health it's just creating i guess a community where people feel that they can be themselves without having to try to hide who they are thank you maria marshall for speaking with me for that report now we have looked at some specific groups that can be influenced and impacted by misinformation now we look towards the people that can potentially influence us. 2021 brought a renewed sense of optimism for the professional athlete. In the world of tennis, last year saw countless matches and tournaments cancelled and the livelihood of its sporting professionals thrown into disarray. Not unlike most events and 
activities these days, the resumption of the men's and women's tennis tours in late 2020 has not been without complications. But this period has also highlighted the influence that sporting professionals can have in terms of misinformation, an important discussion to have in a COVID world. Fraser Douglas reports. On the eve of the 2021 Australian Open, tournament director Craig Tiley was adamant that the tournament would go ahead, despite the concerns of the Victorian people. I would completely uh, empathise and have a great deal of respect for the Victorians. We've all been through a tough time for the past year and again we would not have made this decision to go ahead without the full endorsement support of the Victorian government and the program we had in place is world class and you know, I had a number of calls late last night and in the early hours of the morning also confirming that we want this to happen and we'll do whatever to make it happen. In February, the world watched on in disbelief as the Australian summer of tennis came and went without a relative hitch in world sport today. This was partly due to the imposition of the strictest tennis protocols in the world since the COVID-19 pandemic first shut down the men's and women's tours in early 2020. Whilst the tournament was ultimately run and won, those more cynical would argue that luck played a bigger part than advertised, with multiple player quarantine scares threatening the ability of the tournament to reach the finish line. Despite the strictest player quarantine conditions since the pandemic began, the Australian Open found itself at the mercy of COVID and will certainly feel the pinch in the future. At tournament's end, Craig Tiley admitted that it would take years to recover from the financial hit incurred by such a massive logistical operation. Retaining the crown jewel in Australia's world sporting calendar is priority one going forward. Estimated losses of more than $100 million won't help Tennis Australia's cause. But the Australian Open won't be the only tournament trying to pick up the pieces in 2021. In 2020, the oldest tennis tournament in the world was cancelled due to the burgeoning COVID-19 case numbers in the UK. Wimbledon was first held in 1877 and had only since been cancelled due to the First and Second World Wars prior to 2020. Whilst most of the bigger tournaments like the French and US Opens were rescheduled, Wimbledon opted to punt on the year. That decision was no doubt influenced by the foresight of the All England Tennis Club to purchase pandemic insurance annually since 2002. As a result of the insurance, the club reportedly received a $226 million reimbursement, but like most 2020 events, this return would only limit the financial hit of cancelling the event. With insurers withdrawing pandemic insurance after Wimbledon's payout and the loss of approximately $650 million in revenue from media rights, sponsorship and ticket sales, the All England Club would be wise to have taken note of the strict regulations imposed by Tennis Australia this February. A financial hit was inevitable for the Australian Open, considering the lengths that had to be taken to run the event safely in terms of the strict quarantine conditions that saw over 1,200 players and staff isolated in hotel rooms for 14 days. But one luxury Tennis Australia did have was time. With many sporting events around the world operating at peak periods of the pandemic in 2020, the Australian Open was able to observe the effective methods employed by sporting organisations around the world. One such example was the Australian Football League, which housed the vast majority of its season in quarantine hubs. And for Tennis Australia, the AFL's quarantine environments were seen as a shining example of how the tournament could be navigated successfully. AFL footballer Charlie Spargo was one individual who spent much of last year in a quarantine hub and understands the need for them in a COVID world. 
COVID really made its presence felt in Australia right at the start of our season. And as a result, we had a couple months hiatus. And then we got back to training um, and the season started. We ended up spending uh, much of the season in, in quarantine hubs, you know, in Perth and Sydney and, and Queensland, um, which in turn uh, helped save the season because it just wouldn't have gone ahead within Victoria. As for the hubs, it wasn't an experience that, that everyone loved. But as a team, I thought Melbourne really embraced being away together. And, you know, by doing what we did, you know, moving away to the hubs and, and, and sacrificing a bit, I thought that for the most part, we set a good example in terms of remaining COVID safe and, and respecting the pandemic for what it is. Partly thanks to the example set by the Australian Open and leagues like the AFL before them, the men's and women's tennis tours have been running continuously since February. Australian tennis player Matt Ebden is one such individual that has made a return to the tour this year, but it hasn't been all smooth sailing for the former world number 39. I spoke to Matt earlier this week. These are his words, but not his voice. It's been very difficult. So many logistics, forms needed and COVID tests needed for travel. Special exit and entry letters and permissions needed and all forms have to be applied for. Takes a lot of time and effort. I'm fortunate to have a manager organising it all for me though. One good thing is airports and flights are quieter and less busy so it makes the ins and outs a bit easier. As COVID-19 numbers threaten to reach yet another crescendo in parts of the world, the prospect of compulsory vaccines for players is being considered by the ATP and the WTA, the governing bodies of the men's and women's tennis tours respectively. This idea has been met by scepticism from players, and none more notably than current men's world number one, Novak Djokovic. Here's Djokovic speaking in April of last year. Personally, I'm opposed to vaccination and I wouldn't want to be forced by someone to take a vaccine in order to be able to travel. But if it becomes compulsory, what will happen? I will have to make a decision. I have my own thoughts about the matter and whether those thoughts will change at some point, I don't know. Since Djokovic made that statement on Facebook Live a year ago, he has clarified that he is not completely against vaccines, but after his escapades in 2020, which included holding an exhibition tournament that evolved into a super spreader event, the world number one is not a shiny example for taking the pandemic seriously. But he is not alone. Several other high-profile tennis players, such as Andrei Rublev, Alina Svitolina and Irina Sabalenka, have also questioned the need for a vaccine in recent press conferences. The three referenced the potential side effects and a lack of trust for their reasonings for avoiding vaccination, despite the ATP and WTA recommending that all players receive their vaccinations as soon as possible. Whilst others have handled the pandemic differently, Matt Ebden has recognised the role that professional athletes have in ensuring the pandemic is taken seriously, but also acknowledges that his travels have highlighted that COVID-19 isn't Armageddon. It is important. As we require travel for sport, the pandemic needs to be taken seriously, but it is also not an apocalypse. Most countries in the world are open and functioning just fine. Australia is stuck in a bubble of fear and media fear, which is not warranted at all. I've been in France and Italy over the last month, Dubai and past through New York, and I've also been in the USA. People aren't too phased or bothered at all about COVID in general life. Australia maybe has a bit of an overreaction. Australia needs to vaccinate so they can open the country and get on with life. You can't keep everyone locked in and closed waters forever. In early April, the French Open announced for the second straight year that they would be postponing the event, throwing the tennis calendar into chaos once again. 
A repeat of last year's hiatus may appear unlikely at this stage, but if I've learned anything from the coronavirus pandemic, it's that it is unpredictable. Tennis's governing bodies in the ATP and WTA would be wise to introduce a more consolidated effort to encourage player and fan vaccinations, because the unfounded statements that players are currently making surrounding vaccinations certainly won't assist tennis's attempt to push through the ongoing pandemic. Fraser Douglas with that report. Facebook, Instagram and Twitter have just over 4 billion active monthly users between them. Sky Mitchell looks at the impact it may be having on the spread of misinformation and the role of online influencers. Just before you pick up your phone to look at Facebook for the 10th time that day, there's a notification on your phone from Twitter. You open your app and it is a notification from the American doctor you recently followed, Dr. Joseph McCullough. The underlying core of effortless healing is that your body is designed to heal itself. All you have to do is follow simple practices that our ancient ancestors did. He posted a few interesting articles about COVID-19 that you thought would be helpful. And he was a doctor, so you should be able to trust him, right? You also check his Facebook page. Okay, a Floridian doctor with almost 2 million followers and a blue tick next to his name. He must be legit, you think. Now there's a notification from Facebook and you open the video. Depression and anxiety are at all-time highs. Even worse, the technocratic overlords continue to control the pandemic The coronavirus pandemic and the endless hours stuck inside our homes saw social media usage surge and features such as video call and instant messaging become more and more important for us to connect with the outside world. And it also made way for more information sharing. And in particular, information about vaccines. So what has been happening on social media? I Skyped with Dr. Amelia Burke-Garcia in the US to find out more. In some ways, social media democratizes conversation and information. We're not necessarily being given information through one filtered lens as we may have been given or few filtered lenses that as we may have been given in the past. Uh, it does mean, however, that anyone with uh, a platform and a voice can share their opinion. And that has made it sort of difficult to tell what information is true, uh, what the role of science, understanding science communication, especially around vaccination, understanding vaccination science and how vaccines work, and has has led to sort of the proliferation of opinions and fears and and other sort of ideas that are shared that then sort of get spread and become more widely seen, heard, and potentially believed. Dr. Burke Garcia has done extensive research in the fields of public health and communications and wrote a book called Influencing Health, a comprehensive guide to working with online influencers. There's a lot of data around how uh, falsehoods and misinformation spread faster, wider, more broadly across all areas, all topic areas, including health. 
So I had a look at the data. An MIT study of 126,000 rumours and misinformation stories found that 70% are more likely to be retweeted than true stories. It also takes true stories about six times as long to reach 1,500 people as it does for the false stories to reach the same number of people. The researchers noted, and this is a direct quote from MIT News, People respond to falsehoods more with surprise and disgust. So the emotional response in people is triggered and they are more likely to share. Misinformation tends to be sort of more interesting, right? It's it, there, yeah. there are um, headlines or, you know, sort of quote unquote clickbait titles that catch people's attention, um, make people want to read something, share it. Um, they're a little bit more sensational. Uh, the truth, to be frank, is sort of oftentimes more boring. And so I think that there's that phenomenon of misinformation just being more shareable, whether or not it's true or not, uh, is, is something that we're seeing play out as it relates to vaccination. The sharing of bias and false news has become all too common think, on think, social media. Professor Paul Kelly has described the COVID crisis as also being a social media pandemic. Disinformation and something known as confirmation bias. So, I thought about this phenomenon and wondered about who is responsible for spreading misinformation why is it that these falsehoods are spreading so much faster and more widely than legitimate and factual news stories? Is it doctors like Joseph McCullough with huge numbers of followers? Or a person you went to high school with who lives a few towns over with 200 friends? Amelia's dissertation research was on this exact topic and she has published a number of studies about social media influences, so I asked her to tell me more. With the advent of social media and the advent of influencers and this idea that you can kind of create a platform for yourself, um, gather a following, have a particular perspective or voice on a particular topic, um, it has allowed for these sort of quote unquote opinion leaders to move online and to establish themselves with, you know, um, a different type of community. I thought about the people I follow on Instagram for a minute. They are like-minded have the same interests as me, and they create content that I find interesting. I also agree with most of their opinions, and I feel that if I don't follow them, then I might miss something important. Influencers are powerful because there's trust, because usually people, followers, will follow an influencer because of something that, you know, they have a similar shared interest or, or sort of a, a like-mindedness about a particular topic. I do trust in the content they are creating and sharing, but what about the content that is being shared with them? Am I receiving misinformation through their networks and believing it because the person I am following is my trusted source? Amelia says yes. New information can be given to influencers and therefore shared with their followers. It allows for that new information to come through that sort of opinion leader, that trusted voice, and be listened to and more likely kind of adopted um, by those followers because of the channel that it's coming through. Hmm. Back to Dr. McCullough. The single most important step you can take today is to drink clean, pure water. 
then go take a walk outside, preferably barefoot if you can. Ditch the sunblock, skip breakfast, eat high quality fats, and laugh. You see, effortless healing can be so simple, easy, and fun. He claims that he knows the truth about COVID-19 in his new book and has created the narrative that if we were simply more healthy, we would not need a COVID-19 vaccinations. Is he just a wellness warrior using COVID-19 as a way to sell more books? The Global Wellness Institute valued the global wellness economy at $4.2 trillion. Makes you wonder, who is really behind that weird vaccine social media post from your old high school friend? Sky Mitchell with that story. Today, we have heard about how different local communities can be influenced by others. We have also looked into the people who may be influencing us. Undercover is brought to you by RMIT Journalism. Thank you to our reporters, Eli Duxon, Casper McLeod, Fraser Douglas, and Sky Mitchell. This episode was produced by Neve Walton. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tito Ambio, Janet Rogers, and Zoe Daniels. Don't forget, you can leave us a message at 9018-5005 or contact us on Twitter at cover underscore podcast. We will be here next week with episode three. Until then, 